Welcome to the New Inches podcast. You're listening to a story from the essential Sosonko, collected portraits and tales of a bygone chess era, by Grandmaster Gena Sosonko. Since the 1980s, he has written extensively for New Inches magazine. Sosonko's chess writings, rather than being technical, chronicle the lives of the former and current top players with whom he has crossed paths. Today's episode is about Alexander Alyekin. Alexander Alexandrovich Alyekin became the fourth world chess champion in 1927, a title that, save for a two-year hiatus, he held until his death in 1946. Alyekin has had a lasting influence on the game of chess, but his life is certainly no less interesting. Enjoy the stories in today's reading, narrated by professional voice actor Nick Murphy, from the Essential Sosonko, Chapter 32, Alexander Alyekin. Alexander Alyekin, 1892-1946, The Parish Years Friday morning, summer breakfast in Alyekin's honour. Afternoon, gala lunch in Alyekin's honour. Evening, hot and cold dinner in Alyekin's honour. Thus wrote the Russian wit Don Amanado when the new world chess champion returned to Paris in January 1928 after his victory over Capablanca. There were many famous writers, artists, composers and ballet masters amongst the Russian emigration. But even with all those celebrities, there were shining stars of the first order of magnitude. Sergei Diaghilev, Mark Chagall, Sergei Rachmaninoff, Igor Stravinsky... Ivan Bunin, Fyodor Shalyapin, Serge Lafar. Now another one had started to twinkle, Alexander Alyekin. The whole of Russian Paris rejoiced. For a while, all feuds and arguments were forgotten, and even irreconcilable enemies congratulated each other. Who'd have thought it? Their compatriot had become the strongest chess player in the world. In an essay devoted to the new champion, Author Alexander Kuprin wrote, And what a great thing it is to be a king, reigning neither through the rules of succession, nor through the luck of a plebiscite, but thanks to the sharpness of one's own mind. Reception followed reception, and one laudatory article appeared after another. Now the world chess champion is a Russian. This overcast morning has been brightened for us by your victory. Hurrah! Writer Boris Zaitsev exclaimed with pride. Political thinker Peter Struve echoed him. In the modern spiritual condition of Russians, both inside Russia and abroad, the most undoubtedly genuine and strongest feature is the ascent and intensification of a national sense of our Russianness, zeal for the motherland and pride in her successes and victories. Tribute was paid to the New World Champion on February 4 in the editorial offices of Russia Illustrated. Virtually the entire world of the Russian emigration gathered there. Chess players also came, of course. Osip Bernstein and Eugene Znosko-Borovsky. Glasses were raised, toasts and speeches were made. Bravo, Alyekin! On February 12, the French Chess Federation also hosted a banquet in the hall of the Hotel Lutetia, in honour of the new world champion. For all that, Monsieur Alyekin was a French national, 
When the match with Capablanca was coming to an end, Alyekin received a notification from across the ocean about his attainment of French citizenship. Although Alexander Alexandrovich remarked on this matter with a smile, the match for the world championship between a Cuban and a Russian has finished with a victory for the Frenchman. Obtaining citizenship was extraordinarily important for him. Almost all the Russian emigration lived on the unstable Nansen passports, constantly afraid that they wouldn't be extended. A trip to another country and the associated compulsory acquisition of a visa turned into a not-so-pleasant and almost always protracted process. This was particularly important for Alyekin, who travelled all over the world. In reply to the congratulations, the world champion began his speech with a categorical protest against the assertions attributed to him in the press that he considered winning the title to be the fulfilment of his lifelong dream. Thank God, Alyekin declared, my life's dream is far from the limitations of the 64 squares on the chessboard. None of the journalists thought of asking the world champion what this real dream was, but I don't think that it would have been easy for Alyekin to give a sincere answer. Although, was there really one? The dream, purpose and meaning of his life were precisely to win the title. And moreover, in an article published immediately after the match, Alyekin wrote, Finally, my life's dream has come true, and I have managed to reap the fruits of my long efforts and labours. On February 15, a reception in Alyekin's honour took place at the Russian club. There was no shortage of celebrity here either. Fifteen orators took the stage. Their speeches in honour of the instigator of the festivities were punctuated by lengthy applause. Remembering the past and drinking to the future, the audience greeted every speech with a stormy applause and triple kissing of the world's number one chess player. A week later, a film was made, the showing of which was due to coincide with a big writer's ball in the hall of the Lutetia. Bunin and Zaitsev, poet Vladislav Kordasevich, and his wife, writer Nina Berberova, novelist Mark Oldanov, and philosopher Lev Shestov could be seen in the film. Struva and politician Pavel Milyukov, forgetting their party differences, played a game, the arbiter of which was the world champion himself. Alyekin was always accompanied at all the festivities by Nadeshta Semenova Vasilyeva, nay Fabritskaya. She was the world champion's third wife. Alyekin met Nadeshta Semenova, or Nadine, as everyone called her, in 1924, at one of the Russian balls that were given at the time in Paris on the most varied pretexts. Fabritskaya was the widow of a general, had a grown-up daughter, Gwendolyn, and, like all of Alyekin's wives, was considerably older than her husband. Born into a very wealthy family, Nadine spoke extremely bombastically and dressed vulgarly, covering herself with jewellery from head to toe. Hans Kmok recalled that when the Alyekins were staying in Vienna and Nadine went out several times with Kmok's wife, the waiters in the cafes whispered to each other that Christmas tree is here again. Nadezhda Semenova fussed like a mother over her shura, as she called her husband, and went everywhere with him 
She was with him at the New York tournament in 1927, at the match with Capablanca in Buenos Aires, and at the tournament in San Remo, 1930, and Bled, 1931, which were won brilliantly by Al Yakin. If the couple happened to be in Paris, the world champion was permitted to spend two evenings a week in a club or at the bridge table. Al Yakin enjoyed bridge and played often. During tournaments, at the bar or in the lobby of the hotel, frequently with partners with whom he had strained relations, but never with Capablanca, of course. Sometimes, groups of bridge players got together at his house, and among them there were chess players, too. But Alexander Alexandrovich more often played in a cafe or a club. There he could encounter very strong bridge players as well as rabbits. Lev Lyubimov, who subsequently returned to the Soviet Union, recalled that Alyekin was a man of great passions, but with some flaws. He considered himself not only the number one chess player, to which claim he had every right, but also a man with a colossal, all-embracing intellect, which, of course, raised him above other mortals. The expressions, a man such as myself, with my gifts, and so on, frequently emanated from him. Again, according to Lyubimov, at Bridge 2, Alyekin wanted, in vain though, to achieve the highest class. In the Paris Garden of the Palais Royal, opposite the High Spring Fountain, in a pavilion decorated in white and green, there was a chess club. Alyekin could be seen on the terrace of the club, surrounded by numerous people, if he wasn't playing at some tournament abroad. Here, Alyekin was among his own, and the conversations were naturally about chess or related topics. Alyekin usually held his meetings with reporters in the pavilion of the Palais Royal. Alexander Alexandrovich was uncommonly patient with the profanes, as he called the journalists who had no understanding of chess. In other regards, he was a real chess player. In lively, mixed company, he talked exclusively about chess, and not only about tournaments, prizes and colleagues, Sometimes he didn't hesitate to come up with blindfold variations, if he had a suitable person to talk to, of course, paying no attention to the fact that the other people listening to him didn't even know the rules of the game. Alyekin often visited the Astrea Masonic Lodge on Rue de Yvette. While the Masons who remained in Russia after 1917 ended their days in the Solovki prison camp, Russian Freemasonry in emigration was very active. The Russian Masons in France were considerably different, both from the pre-revolutionary Russian Masons and from mainstream Freemasonry, which had reduced all the ritual and mysticism to a minimum. Numerous lodges existed, including people with the most varied philosophies. The Astraea Masonic Lodge, of which Aliakin became a member, had been founded in 1922 in Paris, and the influx to it was so great that it started to branch out into new lodges, Hermes, Lotus, Humayun and Jupiter. Alyekin, as is apparent from the documents, filled in a membership application form for the lodge on May 21, 1928. A week after a similar application had been made by another immigrant from Russia, Grandmaster Osip Bernstein. Alyekin was recommended for initiation into the Masons 
by Prince Vladimir Vyazemsky, Teslenko, and Gvozdanovich. Profanes, as the initiated Masons were called, had to present their biography and answer questions. Footnote. The part of life that took place outside the Masonic Brotherhood was called profane, as was the whole world outside the boundaries of the Masonic Lodge. The word profane, profanus, lat, uninitiated, is mentioned quite often in Aliakin's interviews and books. For example, one can read in an article about chess composition, Further, let us remember, and not hide from the profanes, the sad truth about how many of the greater artists of the game of chess, for example Morphy, Steinitz, Pillsbury, Minkwitz and others, were stricken by a disease of the soul, while in the annals of composers such cases are unknown. End footnote. Here is a fragment from the questioning of Alexander Alyekin. Before the revolution, his political convictions were distinguished by their lack of clarity for himself and were not fully formed. When the Bolsheviks seized power, he thought that something new was beginning, although he did not know what it was exactly. He worked for the Bolsheviks until 1921, occupying the position of interpreter, became convinced of the vast difference between communist theories and their application in life, decided to leave Russia. As for his views at present, he does not believe in the possibilities of a monarchy. He is a supporter of a democratic system, but he is prepared to reconcile himself with a constitutional monarchy that implements democratic principles. Does not belong to any party. In reply to a question about the motives that had prompted him to join the Masonic Lodge, Alyakin said that he was striving for this because... He was burdened by spiritual loneliness. Osip Bernstein said his reasons for joining the lodge were a search for companionship with cultured and educated Russian people who are above all party differences. The recommendations for both the applicants to become Freemasons were most favourable and after an open vote, Alyakin and Bernstein were initiated into the Masons on the same day, May 24, 1928. Eugene Alexandrovich Znosko-Borovsky, who worked for the émigré newspaper Pozlednia Novosti, was also a Mason, albeit a member of another lodge. Algekin, Bernstein and Znosko-Borovsky viewed the meetings at the lodges more as conversations with people from the same cultural background, the club meetings they were used to during their life in Russia. The Masons usually met twice a week, the sharp-tongued Vladislav Kodosevich only laughed at them. Well, I never. They have two free evenings a week, a break from marital bliss. What a privilege. Prince Vladimir Vyazemsky, who recommended Alyakin to the Astrea, recalled that Alyakin could often be seen playing chess in the large hall of the Russian Masonic house on Rue de Yvette, and his perpetual partner was Grandmaster Bernstein. Engrossed in their game, they didn't listen to the speakers very attentively. They were both inveterate smokers, and during these battles a curtain of thick smoke enveloped everyone around them. Lev Lyubimov, who was also a member of the Astraea, attested. Alyakin soon tired of the Masonic zeal, and he often turned the lodge into a chess club, 
settling in at the chessboard with Grandmaster Bernstein. At first, both maestros came to the Masonic House quite often. In March 1929, Alyekin was elevated to the second degree of Freemasonry, and a year later to the third. It was then that he became a member of another lodge, Friends of Philosophy. General meetings were held at the Astrea twice a month, with readings and debates. Within their own circle, writers, historians and politicians could permit themselves much more than they could in the newspapers and journals, and they were very open with their brothers. Alyekin spoke at the lodge in March 1935, six months before his match with Erva, commenting on his opponent's strengths and weaknesses and his own strategy for the match. Bernstein also gave talks on several occasions. Bernstein constantly travelled for his work, and from 1929 to 1931 he lived in Berlin. Berlin was the city of his youth. In Paris he worked for a branch of a large German company, and when the opportunity to move to Germany arose, Bernstein didn't have to think about it for long. He wrote at the time to his old friend Edward Lasker, who'd been settled in America for a long time, You know, Berlin has blossomed so much. Sometimes I ask myself why we don't move here for good. Fortunately, Bernstein returned to Paris two years before Hitler came to power, and Osip Samoilovich began attending the Australia meetings again. This podcast is brought to you by DGT, the chess innovators. Play on an elegant online chessboard on your favourite chess platforms against old or new friends and without using any screens. You can connect with the DGT app or others, such as the chess.com app. After connecting with an opponent, you can put your phone away and concentrate fully on the board. You will see your opponent's moves through LED rings on the board. To find your nearest DGT dealer, please visit our website at dgt.nl. Alyekin divorced Nadine in 1934 and married the wealthy American Grace Wisher. I am the second husband of my fourth wife, the world champion said, although the publisher of British chess magazine, Brian Riley, who knew Grace well, maintained that the marriage to Alyekin was her fourth too. Grace herself played chess at amateur level and met the world champion when she asked him to sign the book 200 Chess Games, which she had received for winning a Blitz tournament. Having graduated in his day from the School of Jurisprudence in St. Petersburg, Alyekin received the rank of titular counsellor. When he divorced his third wife and married Grace Wishar, an epigram made its way around Paris. He was a titular counsellor. She was a general's widow. He left Nadine with no farewell for peace in his chateau. Grace Wishar was indeed the owner of an 18th century chateau and a large estate near Dieppe, where, as Alyekin claimed, they bred sheep. Then again, when someone inquired about the number of his livestock, Alyekin admitted that there were only two sheep, wisely noting that even a couple was enough in their time, as Adam and Eve had proved. Footnote. Chateau Châtelaigny in the little town of Saint-Aubain-le-Cour, near Dieppe, is still there. When I was in Rouen in summer 1999, 
I got there easily by car in three quarters of an hour. There is now a hotel in the chateau, comprising just five rooms. Each room is named after a chess piece. King, Queen, Rook and Knight. The best room is named after Aljekin. The chateau is imposing with two huge halls downstairs in which receptions are held from time to time, as I was told. A beautiful park with gravel paths right next to a river surrounds the chateau. End footnote. Besides the fact that Grace Wishar was a rich woman and no stranger to chess, she completely freed Aljekin from day-to-day concerns and housework, conducted their correspondence and gave him useful advice. She is the only person who understands me, Aljekin said of her. On the subject of his fourth marriage, the world champion joked, ironically, that Grace Wishar had given her husband a wonderful dowry. Substantial wealth, a love of chess and an additional 16 years. Indeed, Aljekin wasn't yet 42, while his new bride was already 58. Moreover, she looked much older than her age. So in chess circles, people sniped that Aljekin had married Philidor's widow. A story went around Paris, almost certainly invented, that the world champion had started courting a lady who was about the same age as him. Realising that Aljekin was genuinely interested in her, the lady almost fainted. Do I really look that old? Constantly playing in foreign tournaments or touring, Aljekin came to the general meetings at the Astrea less and less often. While he was at the general meetings only ten times in the period from 1928 to 1931, in subsequent years, visits to the lodge by brother Alexander were reduced to an absolute minimum, and the invitations sent to him were often returned. Furthermore, all the youthful Masonic rituals began to seem like a pointless waste of time. There was no fresh influx into the lodge, and the average age of the brothers started to rise rapidly. It was then that Vladislav Kodosevich characterised the Russian émigré Freemasonry as a cross between a parliament and an orphanage for old people. At a meeting in the Astrea on June 12, 1937, the question of excluding brother Alexander Alyekin from the members of the lodge was discussed. At about the same time, brother Osip Bernstein also left the lodge disappointed with masonry. Masonry was based on the principle of secrecy. This secrecy attracted the kind of people whose speciality was secrets, and Soviet Russia's intelligence services kept the Russian Masonic lodges under surveillance from the very start. Up until the mid-30s, the Astraea maintained an overt anti-Soviet orientation, but then it started becoming more loyal to the Soviet Union, getting more and more red. It wasn't this fact, of course, that was the reason why Alyekin stopped visiting the Masonic Lodge. He himself was already searching for contacts with the Soviets, sending congratulations and greetings to newspapers and magazines in the Soviet Union. After Alyekin officially left Soviet Russia, the attitude towards him in his mother country could be termed hesitant and cautious, though also with a negative overtone. In the book by Mikhail Kogan, History of the Game of Chess in Russia, which was completed after the New York tournament of 1927 and before the match with Capablanca, 
Alyekin is still described in a benevolent spirit. Although Alyekin was also officially an alien element, this didn't prevent him from regularly sending correspondence to the magazine Shakmati, published by Nanarikov, in parallel with the semi-official organ and communicating with Grigoriev and Levenfish. The attitude towards Alyekin changed sharply following the speech he gave at the Paris Russian Club after his victory over Capablanca. The day after the celebration, the émigré newspapers quoted his speech, which concluded with a toast, that the myth of the invincibility of the Bolsheviks should be dispelled just as the myth of the invincibility of Capablanca has been dispelled. Clearly, both the speech and the toast did not go unnoticed in the USSR. Shekmatny Listok published a devastating article targeting the world champion, who had poured out a stream of filth and slander against Soviet Russia and against the struggle that is being waged by the Russian working class. And the chief prosecutor and head of Soviet chess, Nikolai Krylenko, declared, The renegade Alyekin has placed himself outside the chess movement in the USSR. After his speech in the Russian club, we are finished with citizen Alyekin. He is our enemy, and henceforth we must treat him only as an enemy. Talent is talent, and politics is politics, and it is forbidden to maintain relations with renegades, whether they be Alyekin or Bogolyubov. From then on, the name Alyekin appeared in the Soviet press, only accompanied by the epithets renegade, white guardist, turncoat and monarchist. But if it was possible to write of Chelyapin that his voice was gone, the great bass was sung out and he was only a pale shadow of the former Chelyapin, with Alyekin it was more difficult. His results spoke for themselves. A few more years passed. The troubled years that at first had seemed to many immigrants like a bad dream that would soon end had become everyday life. Memories of the motherland were being replaced more and more by stories about her, and for the overwhelming majority, dreams of returning home had finally evaporated. But some had decided to return no matter what Russia was, not fully understanding what awaited them at home. It was then that Alyekin began sending telegrams and congratulations to the chess players of the new steel Russia. He realised that there was no point waiting for changes in the motherland and simply began identifying Russia with the USSR. The Austrian master, Hans Kmok, was living permanently in Holland at the time. During big tournaments and matches, he was called from Moscow with the latest news every day. Alyekin knew about this and hoped that one day he would be called too. He has already heard from Fleur, Fine and other discoverers of the Soviet Union, Kmok recalled, that chess tours there can be very profitable. In Soviet Russia, he could earn as many rubles as he wanted, they asserted, and if he exchanged them for valuables, he could take them to France. Alyekin was simply thirsting for an invitation from the Soviet Union. Without doubt, his colleagues' tales about the chess Eldorado influenced Alyekin in making his decision to get closer to the Soviets. What did it matter that the Bolsheviks were in power there, whom he disliked and had fled from? Sergei Prokofiev, for example, 
whom Alyekin remembered very well from their St. Petersburg days, and who we sometimes met in Paris, also had a very sceptical attitude towards the Bolsheviks. But now, having travelled to the Soviet Union several times for concerts, had moved to Moscow for good. And according to the rumours, the famous composer was leading a luxurious lifestyle there, and planning to go on tour again, this time to Europe. And although Don Amenado continues to joke in the Russian calendar for 1935, six bridge games, four balls, breeze and light shower, firm rumour the Bolsheviks have fallen from power. Everyone understands that this is only a sad smile. The doggerel is very far from the truth. And the Bolsheviks' power appears to have established itself seriously and for a long time. In a note, composed by Krylenko and addressed to Stalin, the Republic's chief prosecutor quoted from a telegram that arrived from Holland in November 1935 from Alyekin, in which the world champion congratulated Soviet chess players on the holiday commemorating the anniversary of the October Revolution. Krylenko appended his comments to the text of Alyekin's telegram. When printing the telegram from the current world champion, the white guardist Alyekin, the editors of Izvestia consider it necessary to point out that political treachery and renegade status cannot be atoned for as easily as citizen Alyekin seems to think. In this matter, he must be able to show awareness of his guilt and readiness to make amends for it. Without this, no amount of talent will save Alyekin from the deserved scorn with which he is treated in the USSR. Please send your instructions on this subject. A resolution was affixed without delay. I suggest printing Alyekin's telegram without a commentary. Stalin. Is it necessary to say that Alyekin's congratulations were printed without any kind of editorial comment? These congratulations, which were published in Izvestia and reprinted later in the Russian-language emigre press, alienated Alyekin from a significant number of the immigrants. Many, many people stopped speaking to Alyekin. What? A man who just recently had been cursed by the Soviet of Deputies and the Bolsheviks congratulates these same Bolsheviks on the anniversary of their coup achieved by exiles? Keep this moral in mind, reader. And with that, also do not forget Alyekin, beaten by Erva and, in defeat, going over to the Soviets. A former supporter of the now already former world champion exclaimed in the pages of a Paris daily. But Alyekin himself, far removed from any sentimentality, had little interest in public opinion. He didn't care what other people might think about him. He always behaved in a way that was beneficial to himself above all. The excellent books by Alexander Alexandrovich Alyekin contain generous sprinklings of Latin words and expressions, undoubtedly a consequence of the classical education he had received at one of the best Moscow grammar schools and at the School of Jurisprudence in St. Petersburg. One that was a favourite of his, and that he often used, was nolens volens, whether willing or unwilling. If the chess genius fought uncompromisingly at the board against the willpower and plans of his opponent, in life, bowing to strength, he always swam with the current, believing that circumstances presented him with only one choice, to submit to it, no lens, vo lens. Mm -hmm.